0: According to Time magazine, just six Lego blocks can be combined in 103 million ways. The name Lego comes from two Dutch words that mean play well. And so they have, as the colorful building blocks have remained a top seller since hitting store shelves in 1949, flexing and adapting in an ever-changing landscape of toys. Today, we'll hear from Professor Jan Rivkin about his case entitled Lego. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call.
1: So we are all sitting there in the classroom.
0: The professor walks in. And, and
1: they look up, and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call.
0: Professor Rivkin is an expert in business strategy whose teaching and research examines the interactions across functional and product boundaries within a firm. And that sounds perfectly suited to our conversation today. Jan, welcome. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. So I can't imagine there are many people uh, who don't know the name Lego. Probably most didn't know that it means play well, which I think is a great little insight that comes from the case. Uh, And the Latin translation of that is? I assemble. That's pretty amazing. And they didn't know that when they named
1: it. So just start us off by telling us, how does the case begin? Where where do we start? Sure. As the curtain rises on the case uh, in 2004, Lego stands on the brink of bankruptcy. Uh, It looks certain that this iconic toy maker will be taken over by... Hasbro or Mattel or some other large company or maybe a private equity shop that will break it down into pieces. And uh, Jorn Vig Nudstorp, a fresh-faced 36-year-old. I'm glad you said that. Has just (laughs) taken practice, has just um, been given the helm of the company, and he has one last shot to save the company. It is do or die. Mm-hmm. Uh, what prompted you to write this
0: case? You you played with Legos as a as a child, I assume,
1: right? As many of us, I did. I played as a child, and I played with my kids, and sometimes I still play with them, and sometimes <laughs> I let the kids. Uh, you know, sometimes I share with the kids as well. So my co-author on this case is Stefan Tomke. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stefan and I had the opportunity to get to know the Lego executives. We were interested in the company for a while, and they actually were interested in Harvard Business School as well. Mm -hmm. So we had an exchange with uh, their CEO and with their head of North America and um, one of our alums who works at Lego. And they were interested in perhaps understanding more about what uh, they might learn from Harvard Business School. We were deeply interested in the story of the turnaround of Lego. Mm -hmm. And so they invited us out first to their North America headquarters in Connecticut and then onward to the, the headquarters in Denmark.
0: And what was that like? You got, did you get to oh. see
1: behind the scenes as they make these, uh, the bricks? So it was magnificent going into the Lego factory – Imagine a half-kilometer-long factory filled with injection molding machines every mm-hmm. few seconds churning out new Lego bricks. It was like going into Willy Wonka's factory. <laughs> I kept looking for the, for the Oompa Loompas. <laughs> That's
0: great. Uh, many people probably don't realize you know, that uh, Lego is part of an enormous, uh, ever-changing toy industry. Can you talk about the landscape that the case takes place in?
1: Yeah, so that is one of the first things the students discuss when we teach this case. They're looking at Lego on the brink of bankruptcy and asking, is this an industry problem? Is it a problem with the company's position? Is it somehow a change in the industry that has undermined the company's position? And um, I don't want to ruin the case discussion, but I will say that not all is well in Toyland Mm -hmm. as the case opens, right? Um, There are changes in the customers. There uh, is a threat of substitution. There are threats of new entry. Uh, Kids' play habits are changing uh, in ways that make the industry as a whole more challenging, but also in ways that particularly undermine the Lego value proposition. Mm -hmm. Which is? So it's an interesting um, question. For a Lego, there's a combination of construction and play and education as well. Mm-hmm. The company views itself as not simply being a toy maker. They realize, of course, kids love their product and they are making toys. But they also think of themselves in terms of making a difference in the creativity and imagination of children. Can you talk about the origins of the company? It goes way back, uh,
0: 1916, Olay Kirk Christensen.
1: If ever there were a company with humble origins, it would be Lego. It starts with old Kirk Christensen in 1916. He's a carpenter, opens a woodworking shop in rural Denmark. It is not until uh, the 1930s when he actually adds toys. He starts with furniture and household products. And his son, Gottfried, is actually the one who gets them in first into plastic Mm -hmm. in the late 1940s. And then legend has it that he was on a a ship traveling with a purchasing agent for department stores and other stores. And this agent uh, complained that there was no – systematic way of thinking about toys. The toys departments were a mess in Mm. stores. And that got Gottfried thinking about a system of play, which is what led to the Lego system. Mm -hmm. And it break down the system for us. It all goes back to the brick. And because each brick is interlocking with each other and because the bricks have been the same sizes uh, since I believe the 1950s, each brick can combine with others in many, many ways. And as you mentioned at the outset, very quickly with a handful of bricks, you've got an astronomical number of ways to make a toy.
0: Yeah. And uh, they stuck with their original model for a long time. Change was hard to come by. I loved the insight about the fact that it took 15 years to introduce a green, green. brick into the mix.
1: Yeah. No, the the family owners were very resistant to any sort of change. Yeah. This episode of Cold Call
0: is brought to you by Indeed. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost the visibility of your job post at Indeed.com slash cold call. That's Indeed.com slash cold call. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. So, uh, talk about the culture of the company as they grew and expanded,
1: and sort of really came into their own. So, you know, going into say the nineteen nineties, the company had decades of success. They literally had to limit how quickly they wanted to grow, and um, it was a culture of investment in new products. But really not so much discipline around thinking about how they would react to the future if the market were to change. Mm -hmm. There was an assumption that they would grow at a pace that they dictated Mm -hmm. and the market would buy as many Lego bricks as they could produce. But then um, market conditions started to turn in the 1980s – 1990s, the early 1990s. Uh, There was a decline in birth rates in – their core markets in Europe and North America. There was a change in the retail situation as mom-and-pop stores gave way to discount retailers who started to charge lower and lower prices for toys, including Legos. The big players, like Hasbro and Mattel, pushed production to the Far East while Lego was still very much a Danish company. And kids' uh, play habits changed. Kids had less time for structured play. Mm-hmm. Uh, They were more attracted toward electronic products. Um, Their attention spans seemed to have gotten smaller. Mm -hmm. And all of these things probably made it hard for any traditional toy maker, but particularly for Lego.
0: So Lego chose to respond in some interesting ways when they started to face these challenges. They began to extend the brand into
1: uh, different lines of business. Yeah. Now, what is really helpful from a teaching perspective um, about the Lego story is – there were actually two efforts to turn around the company prior to the one in 2004. Moreover, each of those efforts on their face had some things about it that make sense. So the first effort, starting around 1993, was to extend the brand to other products. Mm-hmm. They looked at other companies with great brands like Disney and said, look, Disney's in so many things. The product line we're currently in seems to have stagnated. What makes sense? Let's take that core asset of the brand and expand into uh, diversity of products. Mm -hmm. So they opened amusement parks. They um, started making video game software, children's clothing, wristwatches. Moreover, in the bricks themselves, they responded to children apparently having less time to play by making it easier to get through the stage of constructing the the product Mm -hmm. and uh, get more quickly to the stage where you play with it. Mm-hmm. On the surface, these things all made sense. But in fact, they led to uh, disastrous outcomes. So a key part of the class discussion is to understand why these things that on their surface look reasonable backfired in this context. Mm-hmm. The second um, attempt at a turnaround was bringing in a mister Fixit, who did many of the things that you would expect someone to do, right? The restructuring of the organization, bringing in a series of layoffs, streamlining production, reducing layers, moving managers around more often, moving design centers out of sleepy old Belund, Denmark, into London, Milan, and San Francisco, uh, consolidating the sales force. They start to sell directly to customers. Mm -hmm. And take, for instance, that last move, selling directly. It kind of makes sense, right? The retail situation is getting tougher. Yeah. The mom-and-pop stores are going out of business. You're having to sell through the Walmarts of the world. Surely it makes sense to go direct to the customer.
0: Well, you've got other brands that have done it. Apple has right. made that right. move. Disney made that
1: move. Yeah. And once again, this turns deeply, deeply south. Mm-hmm. And so the case discussion centers on why do these things that are on their surface seem to make some sense, not make sense in this context. I particularly uh,
0: found the the core priorities that they sort of reestablished as interesting.
1: I don't want to give away too much of the turnaround. The last part of the case discussion has students struggle to put together a plan to turn the company around. They are put in the position of Jordan and asked what would they do. Mm. And they've got to make decisions about every single function of the company. How will the product line change? How will marketing change? How will sales change? How will they approach their retail partners differently? How might they manufacture differently? To do all that, they'll have to change how they procure inputs, how they hire people, who they hire, uh, how they train them, and how they manage the company. So it really is a challenge to come up with an integrated strategic option that will respond to the challenges in the marketplace. will make use of what is unique about Lego. Mm. And we'll avoid the mistakes that the previous two efforts, which seemed sensible, fell into. So you put the students to work on that.
0: Yeah. Do you find that there are any students
1: that you have in class who are unfamiliar with uh, Legos? I cannot remember ever having a student who did not know Lego. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, they calculate they serve roughly 80 million children, right? Which is only a small fraction of the, Mm -hmm. the world's population of children. But I think among the students – among the children who wind up coming to Harvard Business School, we've got a, a large share who are Lego fans.
0: That's good. So they all feel a connection to the case and so They do. Way. They uh,
1: do. And we try to reinforce it. Yeah. Have I shown
0: you the Lego Baker Library? I've seen that in your office. Could yeah. you
1: Describe that for our listeners. So the designers at Lego were very, very gracious. Near the end of the case-writing process, they sent to us a Lego model of Baker Library. It is remarkably detailed. There are – features of the library that I had not noticed in walking by the library for two decades <laughs> until I saw it on the model. We might have to put some pictures of that on the podcast website. Uh, I would we be delighted to share my my model. At some point, it will be bequeathed to Baker Library itself.
0: Yeah, that's fabulous.
1: But for now, it sits in my office and I'm not letting go.
0: Be really careful, I guess. Don't bump into that either. You don't want to take down a wing of the library inadvertently.
1: So it turns out that the model is, in fact, glued together. <laughs> they didn't trust you. The other you. thing I'll, I'll, I'll share with you, Brian, is um, I don't think he would mind. It turns out that the executives of Lego have unique business cards. They are Lego minifigures that look like them wow. and have their names and contact information on the minifigure itself. That's fabulous. That's so great branding, carrying
0: it all the way through. It is. Can you talk a little bit about the way that Lego as a culture uh, manages innovation? So people who are familiar with the toys might just say, well, the things haven't changed forever. It's the same toy. You mentioned the system and how it works. But in fact, there is a strong innovation engine within Lego.
1: Yeah, so it is innovation within certain constraints. Each year, roughly 60% of Lego sales come from products that are brand new. Mm -hmm. On the other hand... 0% of their products, roughly, come from components or pieces that are brand new, Mm -hmm. right? They're the same bricks. And so they need an innovation system that allows them to innovate within the constraints of using the same things. They're also very careful to separate out different types of innovation. So they've got a very small group that thinks about brand new out of the box, Mm -hmm. Uh, things, But they've got a larger group which thinks about how will we create the next Lego brick-based product for our core customer. They also have engaged in a bit of open innovation. There are uh, large numbers of adult fans of Legos, so-called AFLs, adult <laughs> fans of Lego who, because they love the product, are innovating the product all the time. Mm. And so they've got a system by which they reach out to those users of Legos to bring in new innovations. If people are innovating with your product you know, voluntarily, uh, you'd be nuts not to learn from that innovation. So the future is bright. They, they continue to be, by the way,
0: one of the top-selling toys. In fact, on eBay, uh, they were among the top ten toys that people are reselling consistently. Yeah. So.
1: You know, after the turnaround, their returns skyrocket It's quickly above 100 percent return on invested capital. And uh, they've seen very rapid growth, which continues to this day so far. Great.
0: Jan, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure.
0: You can find this case in the HBS Case Collection at hbr.org. I'm Brian Kenney, and you're listening to Cold Call, the official podcast of Harvard Business School.